Welcome to the Hidden Lessons Podcast with me, Maureen Baig. Education is something we all have some experience of, but everyone's experience of education is different. Some people can't wait to finish school and never look back. Others, like me, decide to become teachers themselves. But either way, whether we realise it at the time or not, the days we spend in school have an impact on the rest of our lives. In this podcast, each week, I'll be talking to a special guest about their memories of school and the important lessons that have stayed with them. This week, I am thrilled to be speaking to Baroness Saida Wasi. She's a lawyer, a member of the House of Lords, and was the first Muslim to serve in a British cabinet. Welcome, Baroness Wasi. Hi. Hi, Marine. Good to meet you. I know. It's so lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. My pleasure. I feel like I've known you for ages because I've followed your career uh, and I've always been fascinated with the way in which you've always been prepared to uh, push the boundaries. So, yeah, it's a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Now, I obviously am going to be speaking to you about your time in school. I purposely didn't do much research online about this because I just wanted to hear it all from you. So tell me a little bit about the school that you went to. So I went to the local um, junior school and actually at the time when I was at school, it was junior and middle. And then you went to high school, which was the local comprehensive. And two of the three schools I went to have closed. So that's not a very good sign, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a little bit disturbing. Um, But, you know, we, we, they were okay schools. They clearly produced some, you know, interesting people. Uh, but I, I don't think that the focus on achievement and education uh, was there for me so much at school as it as it was from home. And um, I think my mum was very, very driven, and for her, us having an education was really important. Um, and I just feel that probably in a lot of ways, the schools could have pushed us harder. Do you think that's an Asian thing? Because that, I mean, even hearing you say that, I think it's almost identical to what I would say. So I don't know. I went to my local state school and I don't know if school kind of really pushed me academically at all. But at home, we had no choice but to be kind of studying and revising and reading. And we never had an option to miss any homework or get into get into any trouble because, and I don't know if that's a Pakistani thing or an Asian thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely. It's, um, I think for me, the the clear sense of who we were going to be, what careers we were going to have, what subjects we were going to study, all of that was really done at home. And I think in some ways, and I think it's disappointing for me to say this, but there was a low expectation in school. And certainly I think from Asian girls, there was a low expectation. There was a sense that, well, you're probably not going to go on to achieve much. There are certain things that you probably should be doing anyway. So in a lot of ways, I think there were... Uh, judgments made, stereotypes imposed upon us. And where where was the school? What area did you grow up in? And so this was in West Yorkshire, in Dewsbury. Uh, so it was quite an interesting community which had its own challenges. I mean, in fact, the junior middle school that I went to at one point, kids were removed from that school. White kids were removed from that school because they felt there were too many Asian kids coming to the school. We ended up having a National Front march because of it in the town. So there was a lot of racial undertones to what was going on within schooling as well. I think the the experience of schooling and sometimes, you know, the kind of brutality of seeing what was around me did peer to something to me. And there was a lot of racial bullying 
at school, we were quite lucky in the sense that because we were all girls and my mum used to come to pick us up, you know, if if things were kitching up, you know, we would just run very quickly to the car and then jump in the car and go home and then we would be away from it. Um, but there certainly was, you know, fights at school. There were incidents that I got into. I was probably much naughtier than I should have been. I probably was rebelling against the system. I was probably bored. I was probably not being challenged. So, you know, I think in a lot of ways, I wasn't the goody two-shoes, you know, kid at school who did perfectly well, but I got great grades. And those grades were really based upon the fact that, like you said, when we got home, we had to do our homework. These were the rules that were set. And in many ways, you know, our parents made it very clear and made it conditional that if we didn't do well, then they wouldn't support us through the next phase because they said, you need to do your bit for us to do our bit. I only ever failed one exam, actually. Did you? What was that? Needlework. So was needlework an actual GCSE? Yeah, it was. It was a CFC. So it was a, you either did O-levels. So I did O-levels. Listen, I'm, I'm yeah. very old, very. Um, so I did O-levels and then you did CSEs, which were these additional kind of alternative ones that you did around some of the practical subjects. Oh, you've thrown me actually, because when I expected you to talk about school, I never expected you to say that you were sort of naughty or went into any fights or were rebellious at all. Like, I don't know what I was expecting. I just, I guess I thought you would have been a goody two-shoes at school. No, I mean, I was, but, um, I was quite chatty in class. And I think that's what got me into trouble. And I think I was chatty in class because I was bored. And I think I also felt instinctively, and probably wasn't mature enough to work this out in my head, but I instinctively felt that certain things were wrong. So I remember in history, just being really argumentative about the way in which the, the British Raj was taught. So in the end, I had to be put into an alternative history class with a teacher who was much nowhere. Yeah, yeah, put into an alternative system where I would be looked after better by the teacher who would have a better hold on the naughty kids. But, you know, I based my history uh, grade. So therefore, you know, for me, I I realised that actually if there'd be more space to debate, discuss, disagree within school and there'd be... There'd been parts of history that spoke to me rather than a history which I didn't feel very comfortable with, then I could have had a great schooling experience. Your friendship group when you were at school, was it mainly Asian girls? So I ended up having a group of about four or five Asian girls who became friends. And and we're still friends today. In fact, we're we're all turning 50 and we've all been seeing each other a lot again. And I, I think we were quite feisty. Uh, so when you look back at school now, do you look back at it as quite a negative experience? I suppose I don't, I don't look back at it as a really happy time. Uh, I just see it as a, as a, as a practical space where I had to go through that to get onto the next stage to learn. And, yeah, so you- I, and I've made some great friends and, and, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, I've, I've kind of worked all over the world and had an amazing career, but my school friends are still the friends that I feel that I kind of have the most amazing conversations with because they just remember me as that, you know, geeky, one-eyebrowed, thick glasses wearing, you know, kid from school. Were you ever were you ever picked on for the way that you looked? You were obviously a really strong character and you were sort of ready to fight for yourself, but were you ever picked on for yeah, your appearance? Yeah, my glasses. I had these really so my eyesight's really bad. 
And, um, you know, these days you can get glasses that don't look as bad. But I bought these really big, thick jam jam glasses. I swear I look back on them now. You know, it's like my eyes were like E.T. compared to the rest of my face. I think the other thing that really upset me was that there, there was a lot of racial bullying. So there was stuff, people would say to you, oh, you smell of curry. Maybe we did smell of curry. I have no idea. But my mom is a clean freak. I can't imagine she'd, sent, she'd have sent us to school smelling of curry. But then, you know, curry is quite pungent. Maybe it did stick to our hair and we did smell of it. So I look back at that time and I really used to hate the fact that, you know, people come up to you and say, oh, you smell of curry or you smell. And, and I think that bullying was really nasty. In fact, I remember one particular girl, I won't name her, uh, who was a real bully during my time at school. And you know what was fascinating, Mary, years later when I was a duty solicitor at the local uh, court, um, I was doing a Saturday duty slot, I think, and she came in um, for non-payment of fines. Oh. She came and sat down in front of me, uh, and her, her life hadn't take, had taken a turn for the worse, really. And I just remember her sitting in front of me, and for the first five minutes, I just don't think we acknowledged each other because I just felt completely overwhelmed by the fact that this was the girl that bullied me, and I could feel my heart racing again. And about five minutes into it, when I started taking details, and I said, oh, God, that name sounds familiar. I said, you didn't go to, you know, this school, did you? And she said she did. And, you know, I really was kind to her, and I really made a huge effort to help her through that process. And it kind of helped me get over some of that stuff from school, really. But it also made me realize that she was obviously fighting, you know, when she was being particularly nasty and horrible to me, I know that she was clearly fighting her own demons because her life couldn't, you know, couldn't have, must have had its own challenges for it to turn out how it did. Because here I was in my mid-twenties, in my own practice, running my own legal practice as a lawyer. And and she'd ended up as somebody on much, much harder times. And when you, when you saw her, when you saw her sort of walk in, did you feel, even for a moment, did you feel yourself retreat back into the girl you were at school or feel almost, I don't know, frightened or anxious or worried? I felt anxious. I, I could feel my heart racing and I could, you know, I almost felt like my hands started to sweat. And I just remember thinking, you know, but, but then, you know, literally when she sat down and I looked at how, you know, what she looked like, I looked up because I was obviously in my office clothes and, yeah, and suddenly the dynamics of the whole room changed, and also she needed my help. And uh, yeah, still, you know, it's weird how you know, twenty five years on, I still remember that moment. I think it's also really fascinating and tragic, actually, when you talk about um, the smelling of curry bullying, because you had gone to school a few years before I went to school, and then even when I was at school, um, I that was very much the kind of racist bullying that would happen there even if it was just like a one-off statement or you know a couple of people said it and they may have said it as banter or as a joke but it was very much like you smell of curry and then I know as a teacher I know that's very much the same insult that was used towards some of the Asian kids that I used to teach too so it's almost like the same insult being carried through generations um and it's so hurts that it's weird it's worse than any other insult that could be directed at you because it makes you feel like you are less a human being. Be called spanky to that well, okay, you know, wear glasses, but it's like somehow you're a lesser human being that the way you live, that you should be ashamed of who you are, ashamed of your family, ashamed of what you eat. And that I think just stays with you for a very, very long time. And I think it's what made me in later life 
adopt the attitude of to hell with this. I am not going to be ashamed of who I am. And that's why I've talked very openly about my origins and my background and, mm-hmm. you know, my Yorkshire kind of accent and, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, wearing shawar kameez to work, including the cabinet. Mm-hmm. You know, those were important moments for me because it was about saying, I am not going to be ashamed of who I am and you accept me for who I am. I'm not prepared to be your version of me. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, so is there one particular sort of piece of advice, if you could look back at yourself at that age, is there one piece of advice you would kind of give yourself or one thing that you wish you knew? Um, I, I suppose what, what did work for us, um, and, you know, all credit to my mum for doing this, we went to the library every week. So although, you know, my curiosity and my, you know, naughtiness based on boredom in school was actually satisfied by an intense kind of uh, desire to read all the time. You know, we would go out and take out five books, get them back, take out five more books. I mean, it was constant. And I think that, I don't think I could give myself advice, but I think what did work for me was the fact that there were books available. And that, I think, was priceless for us. Uh, Because had that not been available, um, I think we would have had a very limited occasion, uh, education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess now with all the libraries being closed down, um, so many kids are not going to have yeah. that sort of opportunity because it was the same for us. Mum used to take us to the library and we used to sit and we used to read there for hours and that was my sort of escapism. And that, that's why it makes me particularly sad when I think about libraries now. But also what's really sad, I think, about what you're saying is you obviously had sort of this support and this drive sort of drilled into you from your family and from home. But there must have been so many girls who who didn't. And if you did if they didn't have that support at home and that push at home and then they also weren't getting it at school, then you know that's it's sad. It's true. It would it be sad if there's a generation of women who were failed. Uh, and, you know, what was fascinating was that there were battles going on in people's homes once we left school as to whether or not the girls should be allowed to go to college or to university. Um, and because my mum could drive quite early on, she learned in the early 70s, she literally, I remember her going, you know, home to home with people to people's houses saying, my girls will be going to college and university you know, allow your girls to go to college and university. I will take them. I will drop them off. They will go together. And there's so many girls that I now meet who say, oh, if it hadn't been for you guys and your mum, I wouldn't have studied because actually your mum came and made the case. And my mum did that because she needed a cohort around us. Um, and so, you know, she just felt that the more of us that went through the system together, the better it would be for all of us. Um, so I think, you know, I was incredibly lucky that my parents had the foresight to be able to see that. Uh, but you know, in, in, um, when I look back at so many talented women of my generation who were failed and who could have been, you know, who could have achieved far more, but were just never given the opportunity or the support to do it. Why do you think your parents and particularly your mum, why do you think they were so passionate about their children, about their daughters and about other young girls, um, getting an education? I think for my mom, it stemmed from this deep-rooted sense that she was, I think, consistently made to feel like she'd failed Meherine because she'd had all girls. Actually, it was brilliant. It was the best thing that could have happened because that was it. 
you know, they were just the girls and that was what my parents needed to focus on rather than any any boys. And I'm sure if there'd been a boy in the family, we probably wouldn't have had the focus that we ended up getting. And I think it, it made us really, really driven. It felt like it, we, we grew up feeling like we had something to prove. We had something to achieve. We needed to do something with our lives. I mean, clearly your school experience and even the kind of horrid parts of it, like the racism, it's it shaped what you went on to do. So if you, and how sort of resilient and strong and vocal you became about certain issues. So if you had a choice about what school you went to, if you could go back in time, would you change the school that you went to? No, um, I wouldn't. That's probably a weird thing for me to say because I think it wasn't the best of experiences. But I always think the good and bad experiences in your life shape the person that you become. And I'm not sure I would have become the person that I am today if I hadn't had that experience. I think that fighting in your belly, that ability to be able to fight the you know, you need to have a bit of edge around you, I think, in the world that I've inhabited over the years. You know, being a criminal defence lawyer, prosecutor, and being in politics, it's been pretty brutal at times. And I think the fact that I really had to learn to fight from quite an early age, I don't necessarily mean physical fight, but fight for my space. In fact, you know, I often say, and I said this when I wrote my own book, that you know, the fight for equality started the day I was born because girls are seen as liabilities, boys are seen as assets, Girl, boys are seen as contributors, girls are seen as takers, you know, boys are seen as carrying honour, girls are seen as carrying shame. And right from day one, you're fighting to be on the right side of the balance sheet uh, and for fighting for equal worth and value. And, and, I, and that continued with the issue of race. You know, it started with gender, it continued with race. It, it ended up on religion. So in many ways, those battles had to be fought and won to, for, for me to become the person that I was when the, some of the biggest battles were fought in government. Those kind of experiences can, you know, they can either, like you say, it can teach you to fight or it can, it can break you. So what do you think it was that gave you that kind of power to keep going and to keep fighting and not be demotivated by the prejudice that you're facing? Uh, my, my dad is an absolute optimist, uh, Mary. He believes that anything is possible. And he has got this huge um, heart and this huge vision and huge backbone. I mean, the strength is phenomenal. Um, and he's the kind of man who you'd go to and say, I'm thinking about opening up a coffee shop and say, I can see you with a chain in 10 years' time. You know, <laughs> let me just open the coffee shop for now, Dad. Let me take it from there. But his sense of absolute belief in himself and in, in, in me is, is amazing. He, he is the most, you know, he's the most brilliant man who came from absolutely nothing and made a huge success in his life. And he just does it on this absolute belief that anything is possible and he's now bless him 83 still working um and still you know feels that anything is possible and when you look at young people today do you also sort of carry that belief that anything is possible uh, so one of the things i worry about a lot is, is that when i when i look at even uh, you know our kids or people of our kids generation they have far more insecurities than we had, even though they have far more. 
you know, we had nothing. We didn't, we didn't come from money. We didn't come from, you know, we didn't go to great schools. We didn't have everything provided. We hadn't had access to the whole world. We didn't even know what the world was about. You know, we would, we were literally, you know, fumbling our way through life, trying to work out where things were. You know, often we talk to our kids and say, you know, the first time we were sent away for work and had to stay in a hotel, you know, we didn't, we didn't know what the prospect was of how you book into a hotel. You know, my husband mm. also often tells a story to the kids and says, I actually sat in reception for half an hour watching what other people did. And he said, I turned up with this huge case, you know, 35 kilos of it, wondering, because I had no idea what I would find in a hotel because we were brought up in homes where you didn't go on holidays, where you stayed in hotels. And yet, you know, our kids have got access to everything in the world and yet seem to have, you know, the younger generation seem to have far, far more insecurities and concerns than are, have less fire in their bellies. So I think part of my kind of challenge has been to tell a story of how life can be and really trying to explain to kids today that they have got the opportunity to do anything. They've got the whole world at their fingertips. You know, they don't even need to go to a library to find out information. They can get the phones out. It's all there. Um, and therefore, they should feel optimistic and feel that anything is possible. So do you think now when you look at schools now, or let's say schools even within that sort of area where you had grown up, do you think things have got better for young people? Um, I worry about some of the government policies that we've put in place, which almost stop conversation and discussion. Um, I think teachers should be empowered to have some of the most difficult conversations in schools. Uh, everything from relationships, you know, to politics, to, you know, discussions about finance and addictions and everything else. I just feel that it's such a place where often when these conversations may not be happening in the home and, you know, we're lucky that they're happening in our homes, we have these conversations with our kids. But for those that aren't then school has to be the place where you start to you know broaden people's horizons and open their minds and the way you do that is by opening up conversation not by closing it down and I think in many cases we've closed down conversation in schools. I think the PSHE curriculum in schools sort of personal social care um, is very much in my experience it was very much a tick box exercise anyway so it was you know something that teachers kind of just do just to prove that they've done it but there was there's no real thought into teaching children as you say about real life issues and teaching them about life skills and I don't I personally don't feel like we focus on that enough and children do need that particularly yeah like you say if, if you're not having those conversations around the dinner table at home then where will you learn about those have those discussions and have those debates mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and character forming you know, maybe our characters were formed in quite much more brutal circumstances. But I actually think with kids these days at school, you know, we should be looking at how we're making them well-rounded, you know, individuals who are, you know, inquisitive and question and, you know, a challenge and challenge others and do it in a in a way which is, you know, respectable. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm just, I'm still thinking about what you're saying about, um, what you were saying about, you know, anything is possible and if kids, you know, work harder and stuff. And I do, you know, to, to an extent, I agree with you that, you know, we should teach children, young people to, you know, be resilient and to work really hard and 
sort of fight for their place in this world. I also think back to, you know, students who I used to teach and I, I don't know how much, you know, I used to teach in, in Tottenham in North London. So it was quite, it was quite a deprived area. And I taught lots of students from kind of disadvantaged backgrounds. And they were, you know, I came across so many, so many young people who came from such challenging backgrounds with no family support, with no dinner unless we were feeding after the point where they left school and the pizza we bought them after school. And, you know, some of them were, I had a girl who used to go and clean toilets in the morning with her mum before school and then come into school and do the day of school and then go pick up a brother after school and go home. And, you know, you just think, I think about kids like that. And I think, how do you teach them to, you know, work harder? How can she work harder? And how do you teach, how do you make sure that she reaches her potential? You know, I, I don't I, think I, it's I, easy. I think, I, I think the, where I completely agree with you, Marie, is that the family is the biggest part of somebody's success that a school can try. But in the end, if, you know, for me, I think a failing school and a strong family will still produce good results. But I think a failing family and a good school will still have challenges in providing, in, in, in getting good results. And, uh, That's really but for me, it's not always about working harder. It's about working consistently. And one of the things I say to young people is it's not about having a great year and working really hard for a great year. It's about working well for 10 years. And it's not just in school, it's about the work life as well. I think the the biggest challenge that I have sometimes with young people is their ability to give up. Um, whereas whether because for us it was far more acute where if you gave up, you didn't go on to the next stage of education and your parents didn't support you and life was going to be pretty rubbish and you would end up working in some awful sweatshop in the local community and life was going to be miserable after that. Because that was so real, I think, uh, I mean, I'm not sure about whether my parents would have done it to us, but my mom consistently used to, there used to be a, like, I mean, it was a sweatshop is probably the only way of describing it, where women were paid pretty a pittance to do piecework in a factory type shed thing. And uh, without naming it, my mom used to name it. And she'd say, if you do not do well in your exams, that is where you are dis- destined to go. And it fit it. But the fear of God, you know, to say, mm-hmm. oh my God. I mean, I don't even know how bad it was, but it must have been pretty bad because in our minds, it was a really bad place to be. And so I think in that sense, maybe the 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 alternative to not doing well was so uh, acute and, and life-changing that we had no option but to make sure we kept working. And it wasn't about, like I said, working well on one day. It was about consistently wake, working hard and that's the issue that I have now in politics where often people will say do you not get tired of campaigns for example around the issue of Islamophobia and I'll say well no it's not about campaigning well one day it's about campaigning consistently over years and years to implement change Hmm. and and to tell kids that nothing will come easy it doesn't come easy you know nobody's ever I think part of the issue is that we do you know with, with the with the kind of YouTube, TikTok, celebrity generation, people do think you can just do one thing and then you're going to be known for it and then you that's your life sorted out. Well, no, it's, it's never like that. And, you know, you might have five moments, five minutes of fame, but in the end, the thing that really keeps you going is consistently being committed to something and working at it. 
Mm-hmm. I got I completely, completely agree with the, like I say, one of the biggest blessings was the fact that we didn't have social media when we were growing up. Because, I mean, the impact you can see that has on young people and the fact that you can, you know, you go on Instagram and you see people with living these amazing, lavish, luxurious lives with amazing, expensive things and dinners and for, and it doesn't seem like you, it doesn't seem like they're d- doing very much to get that. And therefore that's what, you know, a lot of young people then think life should be like. That I don't have to put in that much hard work and I should be able to live a life to that standard yeah. which isn't yeah. that's not real life yeah no exactly and I think that kind of instant success and instant you know kind of luxury as you you know as we were talking it just doesn't happen like that and I think that's been the biggest challenge for me with a lot of young people to say to them you know life is tough and if you and it all depends on what you want Mary that's the other thing you know effort you, you need to you, you know you need to have the equation if I put in this much effort that's what I'm going to get but if I want something more than that I'm going to have to put in more effort and I think just making people understand that so yeah have luxury have amazing things but make sure you've worked towards doing your bit to feel like you then deserve to have those things so do you, would you say then would you say that um, Britain operates like as a well, meritocracy basically like do you think that right now the effort you get in is what you'll kind of get out i think there are challenges um, i think you know it's it's far harder being a woman of color than it is being a white man you know if you're a straight white man the statistic science it is going to actually be far easier for you um, unless of course you're from tough working class backgrounds because i think class and has a huge issue on this has a huge impact on this as well that's why you find so many white boys from working class communities not going to university um, so I think there's there's a, an overlay of, you know, race, class, background, regions, which then have an impact on your life. But you've either got to, I think you can go through life saying, will be me and God, this is going to be really tough. But you can be realistic mm-hmm. and say, yes, when I walk into a room as a woman of colour, certain judgments are going to be made about me. Yes, as a Muslim, certain judgments are going to be made about me. And I, I'm just going to have to push through that. You know, I can either say, well, that's it, that's me defeated. Or you can either say, well, right, on, on to the next fight then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you left school, what did you go on and do after that? So my mum chose all of our careers um, from quite a young age, actually. She literally sat down and said, you know, teacher, doctor, lawyer, accountant, you know, the <laughs> typical. And so I got laws. Um, which I'm really pleased about because I think it suited my personality. Were you quite happy with that at the time? Did you want to yeah. sort of feel like... You know... I, I wanted to... If, if I, I think if I'd been given a choice, I probably would have read... I, I really felt that I needed to take the old English classics literature and put a modern twist on them and bring them to the stage. So not be on stage, but actually screenwrite or playwright and 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 I felt that I really needed to to express these English classics I should have made you know Bride and Prejudice basically <laughs> and, um, but I, I remember having a conversation about this once and my mom said yeah okay well you're doing law and that's nice is it and I'm really glad she did because I think the legal career one gave me the skill set that I've used throughout my life, and I think it p- played to my strengths. But it also gave me fin- financial stability, uh, Mary. And I say this to a lot of young people that you know sometimes 
financial stability is important because it gives you choices and you're at your best when you've got the freedom to choose to be what you want, but you can only have the freedom to choose what, what you want to be when you've actually got the mortgage paid and food on the table. So I think what law did for me was that certainly my 20s and early 30s, it gave me a huge amount of financial stability, which then allowed me to go on to make some really big choices about my career. What is the most important hidden lesson you got from school? It's my final question for you. That uh, appeasing rubbish is not the way to deal with it, that in the end you have to stand up to it. And I hope that I've been standing up to rubbish since then and will continue to do so. I genuinely, I, I mean, I don't know what I was expecting for this chat again, but I genuinely really, really enjoyed that. I think that was such an interesting chat. Thank you so much for talking to me, Baroness Wasi. My pleasure. <laughs> I thought that was absolutely brilliant. You know, it's just how so much of what you were saying was so relatable for me. And despite, you know, I was born and brought up in London and there are obviously differences in like when we went to school and things like that. But so much of it was, yeah, so relatable. And I just, I just found that really fascinating. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Hidden Lessons podcast this week and a huge thank you to my guest. You can also find me on Instagram at Queen Marine. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or a review or better yet, tell a friend about it. My new book, also called Hidden Lessons, is out now 